Holy Father, we pray that our hearts will be altars lit by your holy flame. Help our hearts to be open to you, our minds, our spirits, as we continue in worship, and we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Just recently, I read a book whose title intrigued me. It was written by Dan Kimball, and the title of the book was They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. It was the result of uh, extensive interviews that he did with students at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Many of these students have no connection to Christ or Christianity. And what he found is that when he talked to them about Jesus, their faces lit up. They were excited and enamored and affirmed Jesus. But when he talked about the church, all of that changed. And he received comments like, um, Jesus had a good thing going and the church messed it up. Or the church just takes, the, takes the, the, the life and teachings of Jesus and makes them dogmatic rules. Or maybe most disturbing, they ought to, said, someone said they ought to take all the Christians out back and shoot them. That's even serious. The truth of the matter is, there are a lot of people who have fond feelings for Jesus and not so much the church. And when we hear that kind of thing and we, we read that kind of thing, we get defensive, as you know you could expect. But we need to move into the place of recognizing that people have those feelings about the church and it's not their fault, it's our fault. Because it's our behavior as the church on which they're basing their perceptions. However skewed we think they are. But the reality is, because of the behavior of some people in the church or a lot of people in the church, the perception of the church is different from how people perceive, perceive Jesus. And so many people, maybe you have even felt this way, maybe you do feel this way, that there is a disconnect between following Jesus and being part of the church. And you will hear people say all the time, well, I can be a Christian without being in the church. The problem with that is that when you read the scriptures, we find that Jesus is irrevocably connected to the church. It's Jesus who says, I will build my church. It is Paul who writes of Jesus that he is the head of the church. He writes that to the Ephesians and the people in Colossae. And again and again, we see the connection between Jesus and the church, and they are inseparable, even though sometimes we want to separate them. The problem for us is, how do we move from a place of disconnect to connect? How do we create an atmosphere of the church where Instead of people running away from the church to Jesus, they run to the church to find Jesus. 
And it seems to me that if we're going to, to think about what it means to be the church that looks like Jesus wants it to look, maybe the best thing is to go back to where it all began in the book of Acts. And we find here the, the beginnings, the birth of the church. And we th- see through the book of Acts, not a history of the church as much as glimpses into what it means to be the church. And what we find is that at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, the church doesn't autom- people don't automatically just become perfect and now they're the church. There is this progression, this movement from what they are to what they're intended to be. And you see it over and over again. And it strikes me that that ought to be, that's a good motto for us. That's a good way of thinking about the church for us. And it's an idea that, that I, I, I took from a book that I read a number of years ago. That as the church, we are living between what we are and what we're intended to be. And what's important in that statement for me is that it starts with recognizing we're not perfect. And we know that. But sometimes we want to give people an impression that we are. Or at the very least, that we're a whole lot better than we really are. And we exude a spirit of arrogance. We exude sometimes a spirit of we've got all the answers. We've figured everything out. We, we know what needs to, what, everything that needs to be known. We've got it together. When the reality is we are a group of sinners who have been touched by God's grace, but still wrestle with sin. And if we took a poll of this church, I'm sure we would find most every sin represented in some way, shape, or form. Because collectively, we are, we are people who struggle with lying and cheating and lust and selfish ambition and greed and dissension and envy and jealousy and idolatry. And we're hoping that we're getting better and we're... we're Growing, but the truth of the matter is, we are still struggling. But we don't stay there. It's not enough to say, look, this is on, we're honest, this is who we are, we struggle with stuff and just get used to it. We're not going to do anything about it. The call of Scripture, what we see in the book of Acts, is that what God's intent is to start where we are and to move us toward what he intends us to be. And we will, it will be heaven before we're fully intent to reach the point where we are everything he intends us to be. But hopefully there's movement. When you think about every 12-step program. It begins by going to the meeting, standing up and saying, Hi, I'm Wes. I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. And it starts there, and you have to have that. And if you can't admit that, then being there means nothing. That's the first step. And sometimes it's the hardest step, but it's only the first step. And you don't say, okay, I've done that and I'm finished. I figured it out. The whole point is to move someone from that step to sobriety. And in the church, we don't just start by, we don't end by saying, look, we are not perfect. That's our starting point. It's an important starting point. But we are continually asking God to make us into what he intended us to be because Paul says that God created the church to be holy. To look like Jesus. And that's what we want to move toward. And the question is, how do we do that? When we look at Acts chapter 2, we find that for the disciples, the difference, what makes the difference, what sets them on this journey is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is the coming of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost that transformed them into sort of a ragtag group of people 
to people who have courage, preach the word, love one another, totally different people. And it will be the same with us. It's when the Holy Spirit comes and fills us, not just as individuals, but collectively as the church, that we began looking like the church we were intended to be. And I'm convinced that the way to get from where we are toward where we are intended to be is to hunger for Jesus. We create an atmosphere in which the Holy Spirit can come and do something in us when we are a people that hungers for Jesus. It's intriguing to me that when, after Pentecost, and Peter preaches this great sermon, we didn't read all of that in chapter 2, he preaches this great sermon, the whole sermon is not, look for the Holy Spirit, seek the Holy Spirit. The whole sermon is, repent and turn to Jesus. The whole sermon is about Jesus. It's about hungering for Jesus, wanting Jesus, yearning for Jesus, wanting everything about who we are to be enveloped in Jesus. And in that spirit, we create an atmosphere in which the Holy Spirit can do some things that we couldn't dream possible. The struggle for us is that so often, lesser hungers get in the way. For some of us, maybe it's knowledge. And and the thing is, these lesser hungers are good. We should want knowledge. We want to know more about God. We want to know more about Christ. We want to know more about the scriptures. We want to know more of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We ought to, to desire knowledge, to know God. The problem is, we can get when knowledge is our primary hunger, then we can easily be people who know about God without actually knowing God. And it's easy, and what will often happen for us is that when knowledge is our main hunger, we end up fighting about theology. And we end up letting that become most important. And getting right theology is what's most important. And as important as it is, it's still not more important than hungering for Jesus. What we know about God and the scriptures and everything about being Christian will help us hunger for Jesus. But it's not an end. On the other extreme, for some, sometimes it's experiences that we're looking for. And, and we, we hunger for an experience with God. And experiences are great. They are gifts from God. We give thanks for experiences. For a lot of us, ex- the experiences we've had in our journey are, are signposts that we look back on and they fill us with courage and strength And the ability to keep going when we are struggling. And we mark those times and they're important times. But if that is our primary hunger, then we're spending all of our lives trying to duplicate those experiences. And instead of hungering for Jesus, we're hungering to feel something. Now, I love the emotion that we experience when we worship together. When we sing, and can it be, and we get to that third verse, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. 
My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I get goosebumps singing that. And there are other songs that do the same thing for me. And that's a, and, and, and they're important. They, they help us. They speak into our lives. But if, if we think of the church and we think of our hunger as primarily about an experience, then all we're doing is looking for the next high. And if we don't have a feeling, then something's not right. And we end up judging whether things are good or bad or whether God's at work or not based on how we feel, the experience that we can conjure up. Sometimes it's being comfortable. There's a difference between God's comfort in our struggles and in our pain and being comfortable. We like to be comfortable. We want to come together and we want things to be nice and we want things to be the way we have always known them to be. We'd rather not see things change. We'd rather not see things disrupted. We're not really all that interested maybe in taking risks because that could get a little dicey. We just want things to be comfortable. And God seems to want to disrupt our comfortableness all the time. I I look at this this story in Acts 2 and you have 120 people in the upper room praying for the Spirit to come and for God to do what He wants to do. And, and you have to know, you know, after spending the amount of time together that they have, they bonded, they, they've, they know each other, they see things kind of the same way. They're, they look at each other and think, we're, we're family. This is nice. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and that's disrupting enough. And then 3,000 people come into the church on that first day. You talk about throwing things, throwing a wrench and stuff. You have 120 people who are getting along and everything is nice. And you add 3,000 people into that who bring all their, their stuff with them. All of their expectations, all of their desires, all of their misunderstandings, all their confusion, all their ways of seeing things. And everything is turned upside down. And, and I can imagine it would have been easy for that group of 120 to say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. This is too disruptive. This is too many people. This is too much stuff going on here. Hey, what if some of those people are more used by God than I am? What if they take over leadership positions that I've been le- doing? This is not good. Wait a second. I'm not sure I like this. God doesn't seem to care. He says, these, we're adding these folks and figure it out. And sometimes if we're comfortable, if that's our yearning, our desire, we're we're apt to not take risks. We're apt to settle instead of looking for whatever God wants to do. And maybe sometimes a lesser hunger that gets in the way of our hunger for Jesus is morality. You know, obviously morality is a good thing. I mean, it's better to be moral than immoral. Better to be good than evil. Better to be right than wrong. The problem is when, when our number one hunger is morality, we have a tendency to become pretty arrogant and legalistic. Because what ends up happening is we make lists, we make rules. 
That's how you legislate morality. You make rules, and as long as you follow the rules, everything is fine. And so we make our rules, we check them off the list, we're good. And you guys just have to figure out the list and start checking it off because you're not good. But didn't Jesus say to the Pharisees, you guys are following all the right rules, but your hearts are empty. And that's the danger. We can can care about morality, and we should care about morality for ourselves, for the church, for the whole world. We, We ought to care about it. It ought to be important to us. But not more of a hunger than the hunger for Jesus. I think maybe one of the reasons why we struggle to hunger for Jesus is because all these other hungers are really about us. They're all about how we feel, what we're doing, what we like, what makes us feel safe and comfortable. And and when you hunger for Jesus, things have a tendency to get out of control. And I also think that one of the reasons that we wrestle with that is because there's only one thing Jesus seems to tell the disciples to do. Between his ascension and Pentecost, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, he says to the disciples, I want you to do one thing. I don't think it's what we expect. Just one thing. Wait. That's all he says to them. Wait. I hate waiting. Do you hate waiting? I hate waiting. You know, I, I don't like waiting for anything. I don't, you know, when we go to the big city of Wellsville and have to wait for the stoplight, I hate that. You, you know, you don't know the things that go through my mind when I sit out here and I wait for three cars to go by before I can turn on to 19. Thinking, what is going on here? We're traffic jam. We, we spend so much of our lives waiting. We wait for our spouses and our children and, and our siblings and our parents. We Teachers wait for students. Students wait for teachers. We wait for our meal to be served. We wait for the laundry to get done. We wait for it to stop raining. We wait for it to stop snowing. We, we spend our lives waiting over and over and over again. Jerry Seinfeld has this great little skit where he talks about going to the doctor and he said it ought to bother us that we've just come to the place where we're not pretending anymore and the room we start in is the waiting room. We just know what, we're gonna, what else are you going to do there? This is the place where you are. And he says, and then they call your name and you think, oh good, I get to see the doctor. No, you're just going to a smaller waiting room. And we spend so much of our time waiting. And I don't know about you, but I get impatient with waiting. I don't want to wait. I want things done now. But God seems to be enamored with waiting. The Psalms keep telling us, I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord. In Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple. And it says, talked about the man Simeon. It says he's been waiting his whole life To see the promise of God that he would actually see the Messiah. It's interesting to me that the word in Hebrew is translated wait often. can also be translated trust. 
So in Psalm 40, those who wait, those who trust in the Lord will find their lives renewed. I think Jesus says to the disciples to wait and he tells us to wait and we spend so much time waiting for God is because it's in the waiting that so much good stuff happens. If if the Holy Spirit had come the same day Jesus ascended, the disciples wouldn't have been ready. They needed 10 days to pray, to think, to get ready, to wait. And in that waiting, rough edges are knocked off. Our lives are honed. We learn to trust. We build relationships. We learn to be patient. We, we come to see that God's timing is always right, even if we don't understand it. And I am convinced that the most significant thing we can do in our hunger for Jesus is to come and wait. And that's hard for us because we tend to love activity. Now, sometimes I think the motto of the church is, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. But our waiting is not idleness. When disciples aren't just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, staring at the wall. While they're waiting, they are immersing themselves in the scriptures and in prayer and in koinonia, in fellowship, in, in building their lives together, in sharing with each other. And we have been given the means of grace and the spiritual disciplines to help us as we wait. And one of the most significant things we can do is to immerse ourselves in the scriptures and become people of prayer. And that includes silence. And to spend time with each other and to give ourselves away in service. All of these are ways in which we wait and hunger for Jesus. And when Jesus sends the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, amazing things happen. As I read over this passage, the word that keeps coming to my mind is uncontrollable. The Holy Spirit is uncontrollable here. When the Spirit comes upon the disciples, there's you know, flames and wind and they're speaking languages they didn't know before. And I'm pretty sure that wasn't something they planned out. I can't imagine they were sitting there in those 10 days thinking, I wonder what this is going to be like. What if this, what if we, we got some flames and, and we had a lot of wind, of course, and let's talk in languages we've never talked in before. There was no controlling anything that went on on that day of Pentecost. The Spirit came and the whole point of it was the Spirit was in control. Not the disciples. And sometimes that feels difficult for us. We like control. We like making sure we have our hands around things and we've got everything set. But God loves to break the molds of the ways we control. He does it in our lives. He does it corporately as the church. And we can decide we're going to fight him or we're going to follow the spirit. 
And it can feel a little bumpy and rocky sometimes, but it always leads us to an awesome place. Look at what happens on this day and the days that follow. And following the Spirit leads the the followers of Jesus to some awesome experiences and some difficult experiences. But I would guess to a person, they would say, wouldn't trade it for anything. And the uncontrollable work of the Spirit is not limited to these big productions like we see on that morning in Pentecost, but it's also what we see at the end of chapter 2 when it describes the disciples as one in mind and spirit, immersing themselves together in the scriptures and in prayer and community and giving to each other whatever they need. Remember, less about two months before this, less, these same disciples are at each other's throats, just about coming to blows over who's the greatest in the kingdom. And now look at them. Who would have dreamed it? Except Jesus. My prayer for us is that we will be so, we will hunger so much for Jesus that the Spirit will have room to come and do things for us and in us and with us. Because that's what it means to be the church. To be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit. That's what it means to be the church. And John Wesley said near the end of his life that his greatest fear was not that Methodism would cease to exist in America and Europe. His greatest fear was that it would continue to exist and be empty of the Spirit. As a dead form instead of alive in the power of the Spirit. I have sort of this love-hate relationship with mowing the grass. I don't know about you. I've been mowing grass since I was probably 10 years old. And uh, it was my first job getting paid a minuscule amount to mow the churchyard, my dad's church. But, you know, and, I, and I, I don't really look forward to mowing in one sense because it's like, really, you got to do this again? You know, can't we cut it once and be done with it? But it keeps growing, keeps coming back. And it's, you have to work it into your schedule and the rain and all these things. But what I love about it is that it's the one time that I take advantage of to listen to music. I, I don't have, take opportunities to listen to music all that much anymore, partly because when I start listening to music, I start thinking about the music and not what I'm supposed to do. I, people, I know people who, they can listen to music and work at the same time, and it's hard for me. So this is my chance to listen to some music. And so I get my iPod and my headphones and put those on, turn them on and go. And, and usually I don't just listen to music. Usually I'm singing while I'm listening to music. I never realized people could hear me singing. I thought the motor of the engine would, would drown it out as I'm riding along. But then, you know, kids are saying, do you have to sing that loud? We're kind of out here and it's kind of embarrassing. And, I, and then our, our neighbor, Kelly Hitchley, who lived Kitty Corner for us, so they moved this summer. She, I realized you can hear because she's out singing when she mows. Now, the difference is Kelly is a classical musician. She's singing opera. I'm singing hits from the 70s. You know, she's singing La Boheme. I'm singing Mandy by Barry Manilow or Chicago or that kind of stuff. 
Um, so I get on the mower and I turn on the iPod and, and I start listening and singing and, and I, I sort of get lost in it. In fact, I can get so lost in it that there have been times where I've actually missed spots of the yard because I'm just not paying attention. Or I've run over things that weren't supposed to be mowed. Or, um, you know, I've mowed things twice that I did, forgot. You know, I'm just not paying attention. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe a few more than that, a few weeks ago, I, I was out mowing. I had to stop the mower in order to move some things that were in the way where I needed to mow. And so I picked them up and I got back on. I took off again and I'm singing and mowing and not paying all that much attention. And there was a pause in the music between songs. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. The mower doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound loud enough. Usually it's a lot louder than that. And all of a sudden I realized that when I'd gotten off, I had to stop, disengage the blades in order to move the stuff. And when I got back on, I forgot to re-engage the blades. And so I had been mowing for five or six minutes and the blades weren't turning. I was just going around in circles. And, and there was a lot of noise and, and, and there was a lot of movement and I was using up a lot of gasoline. But no grass was getting cut. I was doing all kinds of stuff, but I wasn't fulfilling the reason why I was out there in the first place. And I was talking to someone about that, and they said, you know, that kind of sounds like the church. That's true. Our greatest fear ought to be that we're making a lot of noise. There's a lot of activity. But we don't have a hunger for Jesus. And subsequently... It's not done in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes we, we say, you are what you eat. I want to suggest maybe to say we are what we hunger for. What are we hungry for? Holy Father, thank you for your spirit, for the desires you have for us as a church. You want to take us where we are and move us toward where you intend us to be. We want that, so give us a hunger for Jesus. It makes it possible for the spirit to do more in us than we might have dreamed possible. Through your grace we ask this. Amen.